Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-362 of the Run Run Live podcast. Chris here. I'm criminally behind in my production schedule. As some of you may have divined, especially those of you who follow me on LinkedIn, I changed gigs over the last couple months, and I'm now back in startup land. And it's not my startup, but still the urgency and the lack of resources spill over into my calendar. Humorous editors note here that uh, Microsoft Word tried to change the word divined to deveined, which is something totally different. But I digress. This new gig combined with it being the last few weeks of marathon training for Boston creates a lot less space and opportunity to write and record. The company is out of Silicon Valley, of course. I'm out of Boston, so there's a three-hour time change. And even though you'd think you'd be able to adjust your work days, it always seems to add three or more hours to your day working that way, right? It reminds me of when I had a job where I had to contend with Boston's infamous traffic. I actually had to commute down to Newton for one job. And I devised a plan where I would go in a couple hours early to beat the traffic and then leave a couple hours early on the back end to beat the traffic again. And you know what really ended up happening, right? I'd go in early, get caught up in the day, and end up going home late after the traffic. So there's some math involved there, right? And I'm sure there's some math we could use to make everyone's lives simpler. This is a simple optimization problem. Well, maybe not simple. The way we have it arranged, everyone's whims always line up, right? So, for example, let's say you're sitting at work on a warm Friday in June and you think, I know, I'll leave a couple hours early and I'll get a jump on the traffic and I'll start my drive down to the Cape for the weekend. Well, you can bet there's a couple hundred thousand people having that same thought at that same exact time, and you will soon be sucking CO2 with them on Route 6. And I'm sure all of this will be solved when the impartial artificial intelligence of the robot overlords take over, but will we miss it? Will we someday be writing long, sorrowful poems in praise of a good traffic jam? How it brought our families together? 
and made the fabric of society stronger. Those were the good times. How did I get down this rat hole? Oh yeah, it's Saturday morning and it's snowing. It's been snowing for 24 hours. It's April 1st. Last time we got this kind of spring weather, two weeks before the Boston Marathon, was 2006. And I remember, it ended up being 85 degrees at the starting line that year. Ah, sigh. Today, I bring you a Run Run Live podcast exclusive. An interview with Rick Hoyt. Rick has run almost twice as many Boston Marathons as I have run, and I am thrilled to be able to ask him questions directly. My favorite Hoyt story is how Dick and Rick pushed their way into the Boston Marathon. The Boston Athletic Association of the late 1970s would not be considered an open-minded organization. They were steadfast in their belief that the Boston Marathon was a traditional race. You had to qualify. You had to be a man. You had to be an amateur. And you had to pass a physical and be a real able-bodied athlete to get in. And Dick tried to get in, and they wouldn't let him in. And they thought they had a good barrier to, to entry that he wouldn't be able to get over. They told him that he had to qualify not only in his age group, but in Rick's age group as well. At the time, this meant that Dick had to run better than a 250 marathon with Rick. And Dick didn't whine about it. He didn't sue them. Instead, he trained, and he ran a 245 qualifying race pushing Rick. And this was before things like racing wheelchairs existed. This was before the first running boom. These guys were breaking new ground. They were all alone. Their dogged persistence, their unassuming commitment to the sport, their grit earned them a spot on the starting line in Hopkinton. And the way they did it also earned the respect of the running world and opened a door for a generation of runners. They were pioneers and they caused change. And they cause change by living that change. So that's the context of our interview today. In section one, I'll go deep into how I do a pace run on the treadmill. Um, in section two, I'll give you an audio recording of the second most read blog post I ever wrote. It's a chapter from my first book called Running With Buddy. And this will give you a good lead-in for the sentiment going into our next show, which will include an interview with Lauren Fern Watts about her new book, Giselle's Bucket List, which if you haven't read that, go check it out. Just released. After we last spoke, I attempted a 22-mile tempo run on the Boston course. <laughs> Frank and I did an out and back from Ashland around mile four to Wellesley around mile 15, uh, right before you dip down into Newton Lower Falls. This is the so-called flat portion of the course, and I'm always surprised at just how not flat it is. It's rolling hills, nothing major, but some good pulls when you're racing. And I was rolling off a hard week with lots of miles, and the plan was to run an hour in zone two and then drop into race pace minus five seconds or so for an hour and a half, and then do some five minute on, five minute off zone three surges for the last half hour. And my legs were heavy going in from a big week. I ran seven miles the day before and a set of hill repeats on the Friday. And it was around freezing and overcast to drizzly, of course. And we didn't see as many runners out as we thought we might, given it's the Boston Marathon course a month before the race. When we hit the hour mark into our run, 
I dropped into what I felt like was a race pace to me, but my pacing ability proved to be clueless. <laughs> I was shooting for around an eight-minute mile, but we were clocking 7.30s and 7.40s, and at the end of each mile, I'd look at my watch and go, oh, crap, and then I'd let Frank lead for a while, and we'd manage eight-minute miles, 8.05s, and then I'd drop back into the 7.30s. It was a pacing disaster, uh, like an interval workout, I guess, so... But that's why we do these things. We hung in there trying to find race pace until around the 18-mile mark on the way back, and my wheels just fell off. We were climbing a long hill, and my legs just went dead and said, no mas. This was about an hour into the pace part of the run, so about two hours in. And I let Frank go and tried to find a pace I could manage and recover a bit. And I managed to bash it out in the low eights with a couple of walk breaks but I finished up with over 22 miles and over three hours of decent effort. I even recovered a bit in the last mile. And all in all, I wasn't horribly disappointed. It's another brick in the wall and a good race-specific workout and a good reminder of just how deceptively nasty that Boston course is with its constantly rolling hills. And then I jumped on a plane to Silicon Valley, spent the week out there that uh, it nicely coincided with a rest week, although I did manage to run up uh, 1,500 to 2,000 foot mountain behind my hotel twice. Now I am finishing up my last hard week and tuning up for the big show two weeks away. And I'm off the beer and I'm seeing how far I can get with my weight down for the race, which ironically adds to the stress of my life. <laughs> I made some uh, probably poor nutritional choices out in Cali and have been hovering in around 180 pounds, which isn't horrible for me, but this week I've stayed on top of it much better, and I'm down around 175, and if I could take that, you know, uh, 170 to 175 into the race, that'll be a good racing weight for me. Those 5 to 10 pounds make a huge, huge difference for me on race day, especially where my current bottleneck is my legs, not my engine. Taking a few extra pounds off my quads will buy me a couple of extra miles at uh, race pace on Patriot's Day on those, on those hills. And the weather continues to not cooperate. We are in the midst of yet another storm here two weeks out. My day got away from me yesterday, and I ended up doing hill repeats at dusk in the slush. Now normal people might think, hey, the sun is setting it's 33 degrees out and alternating rain and snow. I think I'll skip that hill workout. But I think here are the marathon gods putting another challenge in front of me. Here is another opportunity for me to rise to the occasion, to do what others will not. And it has some merit to it. It has to be done. So I kitted up quickly when I got home before I lost my nerve. <laughs> Put my old hokas on to not ruin my uh, new hokas and headed out the door through the trails to a secluded bit of road behind my house with a nice hill. And the woods were actually quite peaceful. The snow slash ice was a couple inches deep, but nice and granular, like running on a on beach gravel. And there was no wind and it was quite beautiful with the hiss of the sleet in the treetops. And the hill repeats themselves were a bit tricky. I had three sets of 5 by 40 seconds, and it was snowing fairly hard, and there was slush on the road, 
and it was maybe an inch deep on the shoulders, but in the tire paths from the occasional car, those were relatively clean with just sort of a skim of icy slush. And there were parts where the meltwater was running in sort of a stream down the hill. And the question in my mind was, all right, where am I going to get the most traction? The tire tracks, the slush, the sh- shoulders, the the streams? And I opted for the tire tracks. It was slick, and I had to run a bit flat-footed. I couldn't really tow off with any vigor. <laughs> the trick was to find these places in the road where the road was cracked or had lines in it because these irregularities provided a bit of traction for you to tow off on. And when the occasional car passed, I'd drift over into the slushy shoulder mid-repeat, and that wasn't bad either because there was bark and sticks and dirt under the slush on the shoulder that could give you some traction. But you had to run through the deeper slush and your feet got wet. So I switched back to my my old Hoka's, like I said, not to abuse my my race shoes because I got to run today and I got another big workout tomorrow. And you know what? It wasn't that bad. I got my workout done and I felt like a total stud. I felt like I won somehow. And that's the lesson here, my friends. You make your own rules in this world. Don't let the slush storms of life cause you to miss a workout. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Anatomy of a long treadmill pace run. How to do it. I found that many of you folks like me to go into the gory details of some of the more technical workouts that I do in my training. Now, I tend to shy away from giving overt advice on training because I'm more of a practitioner than a coach. I can tell you in detail how I do a workout, but that doesn't mean I know what I'm talking about. So let's classify these write-ups as more directional learned life lessons than prescriptive training advice. So disclaimers aside, I'll share with you the nuances of a workout I'll call the long treadmill pace run. So what is it? So a pace run is a very common type of workout that is a form of a tempo run. And this type of workout is typically in the last third of your training for a race and is typically race-specific. The goal of this workout is to prepare you to hold the target race pace of your, well, target race. Coaches always love these workouts. They build on top of your aerobic base and strength training with race-specific paces and efforts. And if done right, they can give you the confidence that you have the ability to take on your target race. So these can be done outside in the road or even on the track, but since they are a heart rate or effort-based workout, they're a perfect fit for the treadmill. And But of course, they require a heart rate monitor. This by the way, is also a very hard workout. So let's use the example of a workout I did in this cycle, a 12-mile pace run. In this scenario, you start with a one-mile warm-up, then you run three miles in zone two, then three miles in zone three, then four miles in zone four, and then you run a one-mile cool-down. And I know this sounds like a step-up run, and in a way it is, But the focus of this run is that last, longer part of the workout. 
that last zone three, zone four, that's the biggest chunk of this workout. This is going to be, if you do it right, somewhere around 10 to 30 seconds a mile faster than your target race pace, this last long bit. It's about holding that race pace on tired legs. Yes, it is a monster of a workout. It is specific to the last third of your training campaign when you are race tuning your fitness. It is designed to create cumulative fatigue. This means at the end, when you're doing those zone four effort miles, you're not just suffering from the zone four effort, you're also absorbing the cumulative fatigue of the seven miles of escalating effort going into the zone four. And I'll pause here to say, if you don't know what heart rate training is or effort zones are, search my website for heart rate training articles. Uh, But for the sake of brevity, zone two is conversational. Zone three is starting to get into marathon race pace. And zone four is uh, getting well into that race pace effort. This workout is about effort level, not pace. But at this point in your training, you should be able to correlate pace to effort with some general precision. The other nuance about this workout is that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is not the hardest workout of the week. This is one of the midweek workouts, for example, either a Tuesday or a Thursday. And there's typically four other runs in this week, with two of those being other hard workouts, including a monster long run on the preceding or following Sunday. So my point is, I'm typically going into this workout on tired legs, not wrecked legs, because at this point in your cycle, you should be able to handle the training volume, but tired legs. And this adds to the cumulative fatigue aspect. And that is the big training payoff of this workout, being able to execute at race effort when you're properly knackered. That's what a race is, asking your body to perform when it's tired. Using a treadmill for this workout comes with some setup considerations. Make sure you have a bottle of your favorite sports nutrition at hand. Typically, there's a bottle holder type place on the treadmill. And make sure you have a sweat towel of some sort at hand because you're going to generate some heat with this effort. Understanding that most treadmills in gyms are set to only allow a 60-minute workout. So think ahead to where you'll be around 60 minutes and plan a convenient spot to hit the reset button for another 60. All right, so let's get this workout started. Set the incline to either 0.5 or 1% to get the equivalent of outside running. See how that feels. The first mile is a warm-up. The goal is to warm up. Set the pace to 30 seconds to a minute per mile slower than your normal out on a casual run with friends pace. So for me right now, my easy runs are in the 8.30-ish per mile range. So I would set my warm-up pace at 9s or even 9.30s. And this is going to feel slow, but get over yourself. It's a warm-up. Don't be impatient. This is a long workout. You can speed it up a little if you feel good, but commit to that slow warm-up pace for the first mile, regardless of how slow it feels. Relax, shake out the muscles, practice good form. Now, as you ease into that first step, you should have an estimate in your mind of what pace will give you a zone two effort that you're looking for for those first three miles. 
Understand the cumulative nature of this workout. You're looking for a zone two average across the three miles, and you're looking to end the three miles in mid to high zone two. So your heart rate is going to creep over the course of the miles. The treadmill is digital. Your heart is analog. This means that you may start the first step at a 1.8 or a 1.9 heart rate, but finish at a 2.4 or 2.5. The way you do this is to estimate the pace and have the patience to ease into it. My example is that I've been training in zone 2 at around an 8.30 mile. So I'll start by setting the pace in that first interval at an 8.27, because treadmills have weird pace set points. And I'll stick with that for at least two minutes and see what my heart rate does. If my heart rate is hanging out around that 1.8, for instance, I'll bump up the speed a notch or two to an 8.22 or an 8.17 and give it another two minutes to see where my heart rate stabilizes. If it still go, doesn't go into zone two, I'll push it again and take another two-minute ease-in period. I'll keep repeating that until I find a pace that puts me in low zone two, and then I'll hang in that pace, keeping an eye on my heart rate. And if my heart rate starts to climb up into zone three, I'll back it off slowly the same way. Now for the next three-mile step up, I'll use the same process. I know a zone three pace for me right now is going to be somewhere in the 750 minute per mile. So I'll set the pace there and then adjust it as I progress through the step in the same way. The key learning point here is that you can't try to overfit the algorithm. You need to give your heart rate a chance to adjust and stabilize. Don't change your pace in anything smaller than two minute intervals. Change it and wait two minutes. Let it catch up. And don't change it by more than two clicks at a time. And this will give your heart rate a chance to adjust and you won't overshoot the effort. Now, as you get into that last long zone four effort, things are going to get a bit uncomfortable. You're going to start to feel that cumulative fatigue of the miles. And depending on where you are in your fitness, this will either manifest in your legs or in your engine. You will be forced to get inside yourself and find a form that allows you to stay on pace and in zone. And this is where you have to relax into the effort and sort of ride the effort. And you'll need to really fight to hold good form and stay in the moment. And you'll probably be streaming sweat at this point, too. You'll be quite a spectacle for the other gym patrons. So just smile. This is the good stuff. This is as close to the race experience in training as you can get. And if your legs start to go, focus on effort and turnover. Focus on just turning the legs over. You may have to shorten your stride and bring down the pace a little bit. So initially, you manage this last long step as you did the previous ones. Estimate a zone four pace and ease into it, adjusting as necessary to stay in mid-zone four. Somewhere in this step, you're going to start to fail a bit. That's the point of the workout. Typically, this will happen quickly. You'll be bashing along, trying to survive, and your heart rate will start to climb quickly. And this is a cumulative fatigue inflection point. Keep an eye on your heart rate, and at some point you'll see it climb up over 4.5, and at that point start backing off the pace. You'll probably want to back it off two clicks at a time. When you reach this cumulative fatigue point, 
things can snowball, and you need to stay on top of it to keep the workout from crashing out. You may have to bring the pace way down, like 30 seconds a mile or more, to find that mid-zone for heart rate again. And again, leave it there and let it readjust for a couple minutes. You may find a point where it overcorrects back down into zone 3, and then you can slowly, one click at a time, start bringing the pace up to find a new set point for the zone 4. This cumulative fatigue inflection point may happen multiple times during this long pace step. And that's okay. It's part of the practice. How to manage that cumulative fatigue and keep racing, or at least running, and stay in the race. And to be honest with you, four to five miles of this is a hard slog. You have to be mentally tough to get through it. You'll find yourself clock-watching, mentally willing those little red LED numbers to move faster. And eventually, you can manage through it to the last mile, and with the end in sight, it will become mentally easier. And you might even let yourself off the leash for the last half or quarter mile and see what you can push to. And then you recover for a mile at whatever pace feels right and bask in the glow of knowing you have stared the race pace monster in the eye and persevered. You can put that in your pocket and bring it with you to the target race. And now for today's featured interview. His legs can't run, but he was born to race. He's just a bird with two broken wings. But in his mind, he can fly and do anything. One day he says, Dad, help me run. I need to feel the wind. Will you push your son? With a wheelchair, they both tow the line. Thousands of miles start as Hello, this is Chris Russell, and what follows is an interview with Rick Hoyt from Team Hoyt. So a quick introduction to Rick. Rick was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt, and as a result of oxygen deprivation to Rick's brain at the time of his birth, Rick was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Dick and Judy were advised to institutionalize Rick because there was no chance of him recovering and little hope for Rick to live a, quote, normal life. And this was just the beginning of Dick and Judy's quest for Rick's inclusion in community, sports, education, and one day, the workplace. And Dick and Judy soon realized that though Rick couldn't walk or speak, he was quite astute, and his eyes would follow them around the room. And they fought to integrate Rick into the public school system, pushing administrators to see beyond Rick's physical limitations. And Dick and Judy would take Rick's sledding and swimming and even taught him the alphabet and basic words like any other child. And after providing concrete evidence of Rick's intellect and his ability to learn like everyone else, Dick and Judy needed to find a way to help Rick communicate for himself. 
So with $5,000 in 1972, a skilled group of engineers at Tufts University, and they built an interactive computer for Rick. And this computer consisted of a cursor being used to highlight every letter of the alphabet. And once the letter Rick wanted was highlighted, he was able to select it just by a simple tap of his head against the headpiece attached to his wheelchair. And when the computer was originally first brought home, Rick surprised everyone with his first words. Instead of saying, hi, mom, or hi, dad, Rick's first spoken words were, go Bruins. The Boston Bruins were in the Stanley Cup finals that season. And it was clear from that moment on that Rick loved sports and followed the game just like anyone else. In 1975, at the age of 13, Rick was finally admitted to public school, and after high school, Rick attended Boston University, and he graduated with a degree in special education in 1993. Dick retired in 1995 as a lieutenant colonel from the Air National Guard after serving his country for 37 years. So how did Team Hoyt begin? Well, in the spring of 1977... Rick told his father that he wanted to participate in a five-mile benefit run for a lacrosse player who had been paralyzed in an accident. And far from being a long-distance runner, Dick agreed to push Rick in his wheelchair, and they finished all five miles coming in next to last. And that night, Rick told his father, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. And this realization was just the beginning of what would become Over a thousand races completed, including marathons, duathlons, triathlons, six of them being Ironmans, and also adding to their list of achievements, Dick and Rick biked and ran across the U.S. in 1992, completing the full 3,735 miles in 45 days. In a triathlon, Dick will pull Rick in a boat with a bungee cord attached to a vest around his waist, and to the front of the boat for the swimming stage. And for the biking stage, Rick will ride a special two-seater bicycle, and then Dick will push Rick in his custom-made running chair for the running stage. Rick was once asked if he could give his father one thing, what would it be? And Rick responded, the thing I'd like most is for my dad to sit in the chair and I would push him for once. In the 2009 Boston Marathon, it was officially... Team Hoyt's 1,000th race. Rick always says if it comes down to doing one race a year, he would like it to be the Boston Marathon. It's his favorite race. 2013 was going to be Dick and Rick's last Boston Marathon together, but they were not able to finish due to the bombings. They vowed to be back in 2014 to finish Boston strong with all the other runners, which they did stopping many times along the 26.2 distance to take photos and shake hands of many of the well-wishers and finishing with several of the runners from their Hoyt Foundation Boston Marathon team. Dick and Rick will continue to do shorter races and triathlons together, and teammate Brian Lyons will be taking over in pushing Rick in the 2015, 2016, 2017 Boston Marathons. Brian and Rick ran some local races together, and will start training for Boston after the holidays. Neither Dick or Rick are ready to retire yet. In Boston, there's that same young man. Crowd cheers him on, yelling, yes you can. What he's doing they've never seen. A father's love has set him free. It could 
never be done, said one and all, as he flies right through Heartbreak's wall. Now he's a tidal wave of inspiration, spreading a message all across the nation, and it's begun. Inclusion for Rick, thank you for taking the time and making the effort to answer some questions for us today and agreeing to be interviewed. I know it's a lot more work for you than for most people, so we appreciate it. So first of all, can you tell us who you are and what you do? I am Rick Hoyt. I have cerebral palsy. I asked my father to push me in a five-mile race. 1977. And that launched a career of our running thousands of races, including several Ironman, triathlons, and 32 Boston marathons together. I also go around to schools giving speeches about my life and about how everyone can reach their goals. Thank you. So, so Rick, what are your top three best memories? from all your Boston Marathons. Ever since my father began pushing me in the Boston Marathon, the crowd has always cheered us, supported us, and always been behind us. I am sorry I don't remember the actual year, but one year, a woman came out of the crowd and put a rose across my lap which I carried for miles in 1993, the marathon was just weeks from my graduation from Boston University. Every television station did stories on my upcoming graduation, and the whole crowd along the marathon route had signs which read, Good luck on your graduation, or people yelled out, Good luck. What have been your biggest challenges for two years the boston athletic association said no to my father you cannot push your son in the marathon because we did not have a qualifying time so my father pushed me in the marines marathon with a time of two hours and 45 minutes making us qualify not only in his age group, but also we qualified in my age group. What have you learned from all this? If a person with a disability wants to run a race, go to the director of the race first to work out the details. Do you have any current projects that you'd like to promote or make people aware of? Stay tuned. Because sometime in the future, 
There will be a full featured movie in theaters about the story of Team Hoyt. I'd like to thank Rick very much for taking the time to answer some questions for us and allowing himself to be interviewed and stepping up. And I'd like everyone to be aware that the Team Hoyt Foundation is still looking for contributions. We'd really appreciate any help that you can give us. Thank you very much. to tell us what we already know. One December, I brought home a sad little bundle of fur from a business trip to Tennessee. He was so small and quiet that I had him in a small, soft-sided pet-carrying bag under the seat, and no one even knew. This fur ball was to become my favorite running buddy. He is a professional friend, and he is very good at his job. Running with Buddy. Nobody loves to run more than my puppy. He hangs back on the uphills. His little legs can't eat up the ground as fast as my long stride. But on the downhills, he blows by me like a little furry black-and-white cruise missile. His pace is incredibly smooth and efficient. He hugs the ground, ears back for speed, and no wasted effort. His name is Buddy, and he's less than three months old. Now, before you call the SBCA to report me, he loves to trot a short three-quarter mile trail loop with me. He beats me back every time. He's not even breathing hard. He definitely is designed for it, and I think he likes it. I stop and let him do his doggy things if he wants. I'm very relaxed in my parenting style. I'm not dragging him on a leash. He's unclipped and free to quit at any point, but he doesn't. He knows the trail loop. He knows where he is in relation to home. He dogs me on the way out, staying close on my heels. Then when we turn the corner to head back on a narrow and winding downhill section, he turns on the jets. He knows he's heading back. He cuts the corners on the trail and leads me in. He's a border collie, and you can tell he's bred for healing. I'm like a giant lost sheep that he's leading home. He doesn't sprint and zigzag like a Labrador crashing around in the woods in exuberant lunges. He runs. He keeps a steady pace and conserves energy. He keeps to the trail and is never more than two or three paces ahead or behind me. He has a beautiful stride. No wasted effort. He doesn't even look like he's running. He flows or rolls over the ground with very little vertical pitch. 
He's extremely agile. He has learned how to get over the falling tree trunks that block the trail. He times his hurdles just right and uses his momentum to easily vault obstacles that are as tall as he is. He takes them in stride, not even disrupting his pace, like an Olympic hurdler. He flows over them like water. He's an inspiration to me. He's my running buddy. Running just looks like a natural act for him. In contrast, there are very few humans who make running look like a natural act. Many, including myself, look decidedly unnatural, like they are fighting it, making their bodies do something that they weren't designed for. Not Buddy. He looks great. It's a striking contrast that has taken many years of physical and mental machination for me to experience the joy of running. For this little fuzzball, he was born with it. He doesn't run to lose weight. He doesn't run to get in shape. He doesn't run to relieve stress. He doesn't race. He runs because it's his nature. It's what he does. He came into existence with a love of running. He dreams about running. How many of us can say that? Aside from that recurring nightmare where you show up for the marathon but you've forgotten your shoes, this running dog has even affected my non-running wife. When she takes him for walks now, on the same loop, he pulls the leash and wants to jog. Especially so when she turns the corner and heads back, she can't keep up with him. He can't understand why she won't just jog a little. In his worldview, why in the heck would anyone want to walk? I can't imagine what it's going to be like when he grows up. How are my paltry 10K jogs going to satisfy him? He's just a puppy and he's already got more gears than I do. I guess he'll just have to wait for me to catch up. I can picture him as a two-year-old sitting in the trail ahead looking back with pity on my plodding. Like all new babies, he has begun to show glimpses of the adult to come. He has very much changed from the tiny fur ball that I carried back on the plane with me in a little bag. A month later, you couldn't fit half this dog in that bag. I didn't get the puppy to have a running partner. I got the puppy for my kids. It is coincidentally fortunate for both him and me to have this thing in common, a love of running. We'll take it one day at a time and see how it goes. I'm not going to push him into any distance until he grows up. Maybe he can be trained to push me out of bed in the morning for my long runs on Sunday when it's cold and forbidding out, a warm tongue to the face in the pre-dawn hours. This is a great new chapter for me. He's inspirational to observe in motion. He can change my attitude. Like many of you, I think too much about the mechanics, the purpose, and the meaning of running. He sets an enviable example with a pure, guileless, unthinking, and unencumbered approach to the action of running. This, in conclusion, brings us to my advice to you today. The next time you go out for a run, run like a dog. Approach your run like it is something in your nature that you were born to do. Flow over the ground with an easy, unthinking, and natural stride. Enjoy it for what it is and not what your oversized brain reads into it. And when you return... You can dream sweet dreams of herding fat, happy sheep in a bucolic land where to live is to run. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. All right, my friends, I am running out of daylight, so I have to get the show out the door. You have slip-slided through the snow and slushed to the end of episode 4-362 of the Run Run Live podcast. Like I mentioned, next week we talk about dogs. We're going to the dogs. I love my old dog. He's lying on the floor by the door, here with me as I write. He's bored. He's wearing one of the ridiculous shirts Teresa bought for him to keep him warm. 
The music in the Rick Hoyt interview today was the Team Hoyt theme song, Run, by the Ted Painter Band, and I got permission to use it from Ted, who also runs, pushing Nick for Team Hoyt Boston for their marathon team. They do sub-three-hour marathons, and this will be their third or fourth Boston together. It's available for download at tedpainterband.com, as are other songs and information about the band. To learn more about Ted and Nick, search for Team in the Nick of Time on Facebook or find the link in the show notes. I just assume at this point that everyone knows what I'm talking about, but I guess it wouldn't kill me to give you a quick review. I post the text, all these words, of all these shows on my website, runrunlive.com. You can also click on the show in your podcast player, iTunes or whatever, and all the links and the notes and text are in the actual show file, so you should be able to see that. And that's what I mean when I say it's in the show notes. And I would appreciate any contribution to my Team Hoyt fund you can make. The CrowdRise link is, ironically enough, in the show notes. CrowdRise slash Team Hoyt Boston 2017 slash fundraiser slash Christopher Russell. And I told you my Hill Repeats in the Slush story. Let me tell you another story from this week where the evil gods of Marathon Chaos beat me. It happens. Tuesday, I had one of those 13-mile pace runs on the calendar, and I had it scheduled for mid-morning. I had a window. I had a gap in my schedule and a weather window for it to warm up a little before it started raining. And, of course, calls got rescheduled and things went sideways and I couldn't get out. I repositioned it for early afternoon. And the challenge with this kind of run is I'm looking at close to two full hours on the road. It's hard to squeeze into a day, and that two hours is just the running part, right? So I should have gotten up early and done it, but I'm still recovering. I was still recovering from West Coast time. Jet lag. So early afternoon comes, and I'm still at my desk. Now it's getting dark. It's raining. I'd squeeze in a regular run in these conditions, but a two-hour tempo run in the pitch black, in the rain... Not really. I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the headlamp with me. But I had a flash of inspiration. I still have the key card for my gym at my old office. And I had to pick up Teresa later, so I had a gap. I could drive to the treadmill, knock out this run, and then get to the train to pick her up. Got a plan. So I ended up getting to the treadmill after 6, and had to take some potty breaks, etc., but was getting the workout down. Pound in and out. And then around 8 o'clock, I'm 8 miles in. Two miles into that last five hard zone four miles. And I notice I'm the only one in there. And the cleaning staff is in there with me. And I look at the clock, and I look at the cleaning lady, and it turns out the gym closes at 8 o'clock. That was it. I got my eight miles in and didn't concede defeat as much as call it a draw. The evil marathon gods of entropy and chaos didn't let me complete my planned workout, but I did get an eight-mile tempo run in. We'll call it a tie. Because sometimes, even when you really hang in there, when you make the extra effort, the chaos and entropy still wins. Just just go down swinging, and I'll see you out there. And then... 
He thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Recording, recording, recording. There are times in a man's life when he needs to record. And this is one of those. I suppose I should take the gum out of my mouth. We'll save that for later. And let's go. And I'm thrilled to be able to ask, there's our dog. Can you not while I'm recording? Can you go sit somewhere? This is taking me forever today, and you're not helping. Go go lay down. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them. Go lay down. You're killing me. You're killing me. Today, 